and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden of Witts University in Johannesburg. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. And a good evening up in Hong Kong to Jenny Marsh, who's an assistant editor uh, at the Post magazine of the South China Morning Post. And Jenny, may her name may be familiar to you because in the past couple of weeks, she posted an article or wrote an article that we then posted and also circulated around Twitter that got a lot of attention. Afro-Chinese marriages boom in Guangzhou. But will it be death? Do will it be till death do us part? It was a fascinating story that she wrote for the South China Morning Post Sunday Magazine. Uh, Jenny, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. Well, it's really a pleasure to have you because you you have kind of tapped into something that we as that we were very interested here at uh, you know at the China Africa Project in part because when we talk about the Chinese and Africans kind of engaging with one another, typically it's in the context of diplomacy or trade and economics and geopolitics. But yet this human side of it that you kind of reveal in your piece um, is very very interesting to people. And I say this because. On our Facebook page, we got three times the number of views on your story than we do on our normal stories, and yet at the same time, there's so much conversation about how the Chinese are assimilating and integrating in Africa,、uh, and very little comparatively about what Africans are doing in China. So, before we get into the nitty gritty of you know your story and the Africans and these marriages and these families and all the complexities that is. Tell us a little bit about what motivated you to kind of pursue the story. Why was it of interest to you, and what surprised you the most when you were doing it? Well, I think what what made me want to research a story was just I was really interested in the African presence in Guangzhou, and when I was reading things or watching documentaries, what kept happening was there would be a, an African guy and he would have a Chinese husband, a wife, and that was kind of a recurring pattern, but. None of the articles or the things I was watching were focusing on that side of things.、Um, it was all based around trade and other really interesting issues. But I kind of wanted to find out what the deal was, like、um, how these marriages unfolded, how people met, and kind of what the reaction was to them in Guangzhou.、Um, because I think you know, interracial marriage in China is often quite controversial, anyway, and、um, Chinese. Racial attitudes towards Africans are sometimes not the most kind of progressive. So, I was really interested in this kind of integration.、Um, and once I started looking into it, it was really fascinating. The idea that often the Chinese family is very welcoming, in some cases, not all cases, but can be very welcoming towards an African husband, because these guys are pretty well off. The ones in Guangzhou, they can be. Um, if their business is doing well, they might have a house, you know, a car, and so to a Chinese family, that actually makes them a really good prospect.、Um, so that was interesting, and it was just a really good way, you know, like African Chinese relations. What relation is kind of more central to the human condition than marriage? So it just seemed to be a really nice way to tap into lots of different issues and look at integration on the ground in Guangzhou. You mentioned in your article that、um, that they face very complicated legal、um, barriers to to staying together. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about that. One of the big things was the uncertainty in the Africans' lives in Guangzhou, and often, if you kind of you want to assimilate into a society, if you marry an, a national or a, a local, then you gain extra rights. But what was interesting was. These husbands weren't gaining any extra、uh, rights or privileges by having Chinese wives. So, 
you can be in Guangzhou for 15 years, you can have a business, you can have a wife, you can have three children who are Chinese, but for an African husband, he will never be Chinese. So it can be quite a precarious way to live because you, know, you have everything, your business and your family in China, um, but you might be on a three-month visa and that visa can change at any time. The Chinese government can take it away any moment, you know. And if there was a change in kind of um, policy in China, then that husband might find himself back in his home country with his Chinese family in China still. But we should be clear here that that's not unique to Africans. I mean, they're not being singled out in any way here. That is the situation for effectively all foreigners, correct? Yeah, it is. Um, it is. Although I think there is some research about other types of foreigners. There's a scheme where you can apply to become a Chinese national. And I think from what I've heard, like no, none of the African community have been successful with that, but it is out there. So I, I, I need to look into this yeah. particular part of it more, but I think it's more, it's diffi more difficult uh, for Africans. And they, they kind of faced bigger challenges. Well, you, yeah, you were very polite in how you talked about, you know, Chinese racial attitudes. And this is something, I mean, I want to kind of like, let's talk about the proverbial elephant in the room here, which is, you know, Chinese racism. And when we bring up this issue of Africans in China, and you put it out on blogs or on social media, one of the almost instant responses you get from people is the Chinese are racist. I think it's a very complicated issue here. And it's not necessarily that they're, they're racist per se. There is not not a, a lot of context and in, in, in experience that people have living in multicultural environments. Uh, so when you have a community, and you kind of put the estimates between 20,000 and 200,000 uh, African migrants who live in, uh, in, in, from lack of what they describe as Chalkadicheng, which is a chocolate city in the southern Chinese city of Guangzhou. Um, so we don't really have a good estimate, but we know that there's, a, there's some tensions in that community between Africans and uh, the local community. So let me ask you, you know, when you did your research, and please don't be polite, let's be direct here. Um, what, how, is it racist? Is it ignorance? What is it in terms of the tensions that exist and how Africans are accepted or not accepted within Chinese society? Well, I think I'd have to start by saying, you know, if you, if you go to Little Africa in Guangzhou, you won't, I didn't ever see any overt um, racial tensions. If anything, it seemed... Like a really harmonious society with Uyghurs, Africans, Chinese. It all seemed to be running like clockwork. Um, and of the families that I spoke to, everybody kind of said, at first the Chinese family were unsure about an African husband, but then when they met him and he spoke Mandarin, everything was okay. Um, but then when I spoke to Gordon Matthews, he, was, he kind of told me that he feels that is not a true representation of the real situation and that these people are kind of glossing over racial tensions that he's experienced, um, and that many people can't get married because the families just closed down those marriages. So I suppose I wouldn't have talked to those people. But there was one guy um, I mentioned in the piece called Deboucher, and he had experienced racism. Um, he said that when he was getting his car washed, he heard them speaking a Mandarin saying that they, they thought the African's car smelled and they didn't like washing his car because they thought it stunk and... He was kind of upset because he understood what they were saying because he speaks Mandarin. Um, so I think there was some prejudice. And I know that on Weibo, it was, the link was going around to this piece. And people were saying two things. The first one was quite positive, And they were saying that um, 
if Africans and Chinese do have children, maybe China will finally be good at football. <laughs> and, <laughs> but the second one was just really, really racial, racist comments that people were actually happy to put their name to on Weibo. So that's kind of disappointing. Yeah. And some of the comments on the South China Morning Post article even, they're just... They're quite racist, so that's kind of... Well, you know, Cobus, we, we talked about this issue oh, maybe a year ago, year and a half ago, I think, when we talked about the presence of Africans on Chinese media, singers, performers, they, you, know, con- you know, reality show contests. Uh, in fact, there are a small number of even Afro-Chinese uh, who are, and there's a lot of... Uh, a lot of controversy and tension within the society that's over that. But from what we're hearing from Jenny here, though, it doesn't really sound like that the situation in China is really any, any different than it is, say, in South Africa or in Lusaka or, in, for that matter, in New York. I mean, racism is a part of life and, and, and cultural prejudices and, and racial tensions are a part of life pretty much anywhere. Um, so it seems like in that context, China's the same. I guess, Kovist, what I'm interested in, in hearing from you a little bit is that what you read in the article and what you've heard from Jenny, is it different from the, the tensions that exist, say, in Johannesburg? Yes, it is. Um, I think the the big difference is that, um, that China's a much more... Um, how, how should I say that? Um, it's, I, I think... China, it's a more ethnically fucked, homogenous society. I mean, it's 90 plus percent I don't think that in, in reality it necessarily is, but it, it thinks of itself as as a more ethnically homogenous society. I think that that's the big difference. Um, you know, kind of, and it also, you have this, you have this, um, this kind of airtight, you know, kind of overlap between, between nationality, language, race, um, national identity, um, which I think is, is a bit more complex in, in other places. You know, kind of, uh, national identity in other countries is, is is a bit more flexible, I think. You know, kind of, and it is possible to to for for um, one national identity to to encompass you know people looking different. While I, which I think is, is is harder to do in China. Um, Jenny, what I was very interested in um, is what you pointed out in terms of class difference between Africans and Chinese. That frequently, um, whereas there is this, this perception that marrying a black person is marrying down, in reality, in class, in real objective class terms. That's not actually the the case always in the in in these relationships. So um, I wonder if you could expand on that. Yeah, that was that wasn't really interesting about these relationships, particularly um, for a Chinese woman marrying this particular type of African migrant in Guangzhou can be marrying up in two ways. One, because often the women that the African uh, traders marry are economic migrants themselves, so they've come from rural areas around China to Guangzhou to seek a better life, just like the Africans themselves, really, kind of similar. Um, so the kind of jobs they might be doing otherwise are quite menial, and maybe they'd be in a factory or something. Whereas if you marry an African that's a trader, it works really well for both of you, because he'll probably, he'll be trading things back to Africa, but he can't open legally a shop in Guangzhou. So the woman then becomes the, the front for his shop. So she gets to kind of be like head of this um, wholesale operation, she might start doing deals with factories. And so she suddenly becomes like her, her job status is way higher than it might have been if she'd just taken a regular migrant job. So she has a much higher standard of living economically. But also that's a huge level of equality in a relationship that isn't always seen in traditional uh, Chinese marriages. I think there was one lady I interviewed, Michelle, who said she likes being married to an African man because she could be a strong businesswoman. 
Whereas if she was married to a Chinese man, she didn't feel that she would have that opportunity. What are the perceptions in terms of marrying an African or a, a black person versus, say, marrying uh, a Western or a white person in terms of social status? And the reason I ask this because there was two pull quotes in your article that, that kind of seem conflicted with one another. One, you say, quote, marrying a black person is still marrying down in China. And then later you say, um, uh, let's see, oh, marrying a foreigner is a way to upgrade their social status because the Africans have money. So there's a conflict there. And so I'm kind of curious about which one is it and or, or neither. And what's the comparison with, you know, say, marrying a white person? It's a really interesting point. And uh, I didn't actually ask anyone that question so it's kind of just my perception but sure. I think the marrying up and marrying down issue I think if if your terms of if, you're, if your family your Chinese family is thinking about economic status marrying the African is marrying up but if the Chinese family is more bothered about social status marrying the African is marrying down um, and Lanessa who I met is a researcher in Guangzhou and he's from Guangzhou as well so she has kind of a really good local knowledge she was saying that the perception is, you know, like Chinese women that marry Africans, maybe they couldn't find a Chinese husband. That's kind of the perception. Like there's, there's some sort of social stigma that still goes with it. Um, whereas I think to marry a Westerner, um, a Caucasian man, I think wouldn't have that stigma at all. But I think those marriages are quite different. I think the idea about marrying a Western man uh, would be that you would leave China with him. So it would be a gateway to somewhere else. Whereas this is, I think, a unique circumstance in that it's Chinese marrying foreigners, but staying in China rather than moving to that foreigner's homeland. Um, one thing I, I, that was very interesting for me um, is the point that you made that there's much more Chinese women marrying foreigners than Chinese men marrying foreigners. Um, and this um, this is was paralleled by my experience. I lived in Japan for a long time and it was very similar. There's, very, there's much fewer, um, you know, kind of mixed relationships where, where between a Japanese man and a foreign woman than the other way around. Um, and w- why do you think that is? Um, I think it's really quite simple, but I don't know. It's quite hard to put it uh, delicately, but I'm just going to say, I think (laughs) the African women tend to be a bit bigger, maybe. They have curves and they're really proud of them. And I just think the Chinese men tend to be smaller, different kind of stature. And I think for an African woman, a man should kind of be tall and big. And I just think physically they're not attracted to each other. That was what Mm -hmm. the vibe I got. And I literally, I couldn't find anybody that even knew somebody where it was the Chinese man marrying or dating the African woman. But I know that it does happen in Africa. It happens in Africa quite a bit. That's what's interesting, in in part because circumstances are different there. Uh, You have, uh, you know, Chinese men who are often there by themselves. So, uh, you know, just the same way that there are African men in China, you have Chinese men in Africa. So they kind of adapt to whatever it is. Uh, Children is is one of the interesting things that kind of came up. And you had these these beautiful pictures of children, you know, different families and and their kids. And, you know, what a lot of people particularly older generation, the parents will say, and this is what's common in the, in the West, saying, I don't have a problem with you marrying a black man or a Chinese man or a whatever fill-in-the-blank race. It's just the children that I'm so worried about. You know, they're going to have such a hard life. What did people tell you about the, the fate awaiting these mixed-race children in a society that, again, doesn't have an enormous amount of experience dealing with multiculturalism? People are really excited about these kids. 
a lot of the people that I spoke to um, said, you know, these children have such a great position in China because they understand China, they understand Africa. They often speak an African language, Chinese and English or French. And from what I saw, I mean, I visited this kindergarten that was great. It was set up specifically to deal with all the different kind of multicultural issues happening in Guangzhou right now. So it served halal food and the integration there was great. And I asked the, the kindergarten teacher if there'd ever been any issues of racism amongst the children. And she said there hadn't been, you know, so they, I mean, those kids are very young. But I think that's quite positive. If from a young age, um, the next generation are introduced to lots of different nationalities from a young age, I think that bodes quite well for them. What can be weird is if um, you're in a family, say, of two or three children, and then the family can't afford to pay for the huku of the second or third, like the nationality of those children, because of the one-child policy. So you might end up with three children where the eldest child has a Chinese nationality, Chinese passport, but the second two don't. And what happens to those children when they turn 18 would be really interesting because they are Chinese, they're born in China, they have a Chinese mother, but they could end up not having any rights in China because if the family haven't got 30,000 RMBs pay to waive the one-child policy, they're stuck on their father's African visa. Yeah, no, it's uh, I, it sounds it sounds like such a complicated situation. Um, how how do those families then deal with that? Do do the entire do the families split up in in cases where the father loses his his visa, or is there also situations where the entire family move moves to Africa to to stay together? I don't know yet because um, most of these kids are only around sort of ten years old, so they're so young it hasn't really matured. I think when these children start getting to their late teens, it will be really interesting to see what happens. And also, I think most of the African men don't want to stay in China. Everybody that I met, I think bar like three people, want to go back to Africa at some point and take their family back to Africa. So it'll be really interesting to see whether the Chinese wives want to do that and, you know, whether it happens and all the families break up or, you know, how it plays out for these families. Well, the article is Afro-Chinese marriages boom in Guangzhou, but will it be till death do us part? Jenny Marsh wrote it for the uh, Post magazine, which is the South China Morning Post. And if you're not familiar with the South China Morning Post, uh, it is not a Chinese newspaper, even though it has the word China in the headline. It's a Hong Kong newspaper, an independent newspaper, an excellent uh, website at scmp.com. And if you go to scmp.com, you can find uh, her uh, her article. We'll also put a post up on our website at China Africa Project. And we posted it up on Facebook. So if you just want to go through our feed, you can find it there. Jenny, if people want to follow what you're doing and, and, and some of the work and that you're that you're doing over at uh, at the post, what's the best way they might be able to follow what you're reading and writing? Um, I normally put everything on Twitter. So I tweet at um, Jen with two N's, one Marsh. Um, or the South China Morning Post website is also a great place to visit. Excellent. And, and if people are interested, if you're interested in this topic, I'd like to recommend a, a guest that we had on the show 
uh, a couple months ago, I think, or even even longer, uh, Roberto Castillo. And he really, in many ways, is considered to be the preeminent expert on Africans in China. Uh, he's a, a PhD candidate at the Chinese University of Hong Kong. He's got an excellent blog and photo stream over at africansinchina.net. Highly, highly recommend it. And for the flip side of it, um, China's Second Continent by Howard French is uh, really an excellent look at the Chinese in Africa, the Chinese people in Africa and their views. And there's a lot uh, on in, in his book about the racial issues that we talked about today with Jenny. Uh, and we're going to have Howard uh, on the show coming up uh, later in a, few, in a few weeks, actually, later next month. So we're really looking forward to that. Hey, Kobus, if people want to follow what you're reading and writing these days, what's the best way they can stay in touch with you? You'll see me on our Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash China Africa Project. And also I'm on Twitter at Stadenesque. That's S-T-A-D-E-N-E-S-Q-U-E. And that Facebook page, once again, is facebook.com slash China Africa Project. We're closing in on 200,000 followers all over the world. A great place where there's a discussion going on, where we're posting articles like Jenny's, uh, you know, not just on economics and on politics, but also on the human side and the cultural side as well. And so uh, hopefully Jenny will continue to do more reporting on on this uh, in the future because we really loved your article. And if you'd like to follow me on Twitter, you can find me over at EOLander. That's E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R. I'm tweeting the top China in Africa headlines almost every day. So that'll do it for this edition of the show. Jenny, once again, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate your time and, and really just great work that you did there. Thank you very much for having me. I hope it was interesting. Wonderful. And we'll be back again very soon with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Thank you so much for listening.